with Revelation chapter 10 begins the longest of the visions that uh, the Apostle John has as recorded in this book. He begins that vision here uh, in this chapter and it runs through the end of chapter 12. It is a long interlude between the sounding of the sixth and seventh trumpets. These interludes, and this one is very much like the one between the sixth and seventh seals, these interludes are written for the encouragement of God's people. They are written to let us know that at no time in the present or in the future will things ever get so bad, even in the extremity at the end of time, that God is not still in control. Now I mentioned it last week. I would do well to mention it again. That when we come to these interludes, there is such a radical contrast between them and what is going on on the earth. On the earth, judgments have fallen one after another. The gospel has been proclaimed by mighty angels. Every opportunity to repent is extended and in judgment over a short period of time, one half the population of the earth has been destroyed. And as we look at chapter 10, on the earth they are preparing to do battle to eradicate, so they believe, God from human existence. Such a radical contrast. They let us know that God is always in charge, even if we do not understand all that that means, and that at no time will anything happen beyond what He allows. This chapter comes like sunshine after a rainstorm. It bursts through with relief and hope. And it is, I think, in its barest essence, a very beautiful extended metaphor of the importance of the Word of God. All man's troubles since the beginning have come from the fact that mankind has lost sight of the Creator and of their sole purpose of existence to bring Him glory. And so in Revelation 10, the sealed Word First of all, in Revelation 10, verses 1 through 4, here is the scene announced. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. This scene is carried forward in the 
uh, presence of another angel. Now, as we read the description of the angel in these first four verses, it is very uh, tempting to consider that this angel might be the angel of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are some reasons why I think not. First of all, in the text of the New Testament, the preposition here that designates this as another angel is another angel of the same kind. We have seen angels in chapter 5, in chapter 7, in chapter 8, mighty angels carrying out the bidding of God. And we are told here that this is another angel of the same kind. Now perhaps it is the same angel as in chapter 5, verse 2, or again in chapter 8, verse 3. We really don't know. It is a very graphic description it sounds very much as if it could be the angel described in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verses 5 and following. I think another reason that I do not consider it to be the Lord Jesus Christ is that there is no indication anywhere in prophecy that during the time of the Great Tribulation, the Lord Jesus Christ descends to the earth, and this angel descends to the earth. It is a mighty angel of great power and authority. If I were going to guess, I would guess that it is the, the angel Michael. Michael is the archangel and his name, Mikael, means who is like Jehovah. And so when we remember that God, whenever he named anything, named it according to the essence of its nature, we can assume, and uh, I would not, uh, if the Lord had wanted to say Michael here, he would have. But it is a fact that Michael is the chief angel. He is the archangel. He is the angel next to the throne. And so... He perhaps is the one whose description sounds very much like God. For the Bible talks of the voice of God is the roaring of a lion in the books of the prophets, especially in Amos. It talks about the rainbow that circles the throne of God. And here the rainbow is circling uh, the head of the mighty angel and a voice like thunder. This angel is with the clouds. The clouds were often a symbol of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the cloud accompanied Israel in the desert by day to protect them from the desert heat. The cloud rested over the tabernacle in the wilderness and it was not until the cloud lifted that they would fold the tabernacle, put it away and journey on following the Lord. It was in a cloud that the Lord revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, as he offered the sacrifices and prayed the dedication prayer, the Shekinah, the glorious cloud of the presence of God, descended and rested there over the tabernacle. On the Mount of Transfiguration, a cloud surrounded uh, Jesus as he met there on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. When he ascended to his father, in the book of Acts, we read that 
he rode the wings of the cloud out of their sight to the side of his father. And in Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7, John says, Behold, he comes with clouds. So certainly this mighty angel signifies the presence of God. The brass and the fire symbolize judgment and wrath and purging. We are commanded to declare the whole counsel of God. And I suggest to you that it is absolutely absurd to declare the love and the grace of God without declaring the reason that demanded that Jesus go to the cross. And that was the sin and the wickedness of the world. God takes sin seriously. If he had not taken it seriously, he never would have sent Jesus to the cross. And he is a God of love. He is a God of grace. His wrath and his judgment are the other side of that same coin. You cannot have one without having the other. This book, I think, is different from the seven-sealed book, which when the Lamb broke the seals, the judgments began. For a book to be bound with seven seals on one side, that must be a large book. This is a little book. And I cannot assume that the title deed to the earth would have been passed from the hand of the Lord Jesus to any other hand. So what is this book? There are many suggestions. There are those certainly who suggest that it is the title deed to the earth, that it is the same as the seven-sealed book, but I, I do not believe so. It is a representation of God's Word in some way. Some have suggested that it is the angel's orders because the angel being a good uh, military man would like nothing better than to feed his orders at times to somebody else. But whatever it is, it is a representation of God speaking to his people. And that is what is important for us to see. I think it may very well be the book that Daniel, the prophet, was told to seal until the end of time in Daniel chapter 12. The roaring of the lion as seen in Hosea 11, in the book of Amos, Isaiah 5, in the book of Psalms, is a symbol that judgment is near, that it is imminent, that it is coming. The thunder foreshadows judgment as it did in the book of Job and in the book of 1 Samuel. These four verses written by a man who was saturated with the Word of God, drawing from the Word of God that was already available to him as he saw and as he understood, as he was illumined and as he wrote, from all over the Word of God like a magnet to his hand came the signs of the end and he wrote them down for us as he announced the scene. And then notice in verses 5 through 7, here is a sworn affirmation. A sworn affirmation. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea 
and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel when he is about to sound, that is the seventh trumpet, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. I think we would do well to turn to Colossians chapter 1. The word mystery is a fascinating Bible study. There are several mysteries Uh, that are discussed that I believe are independent of each other in Scripture. Uh, Several in the New Testament as well. But I believe that this is the mystery that is being discussed by Paul in the letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1, verses 25 through 27. Of this church, I was made a minister. According to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, that is, Christ in you. The hope of glory. Notice here in Revelation, it does not say the mystery is revealed. It says the mystery is completed. It is finished. It is completed. There are many things mysterious about our faith. We often wonder why God ever allowed evil. Why God does not destroy the devil. Why he allows the things that surround us, and the only answer I know of is this. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. And it is a sufficient answer. I love this statement that I'd like to read you from John Phillips. It is almost, it is so dramatic and so uh, lyrical, it sounds like a monologue in a stage play, but it is his uh, reflection on the presence of Christ and the mighty angels in Revelation. Once, long years ago, he trod the trackless desert sands clothed in a cloud, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and on to Kadesh Barnea with Israel marching in ranks behind him. Now again, he is clothed in a swirling bank of cloud. Once he hung the rainbow in the sky. There it remained with its bow bent toward the heart of heaven, but it was a bow without an arrow, as if the arrow had been discharged into the very heart of God. Now he wears the rainbow on his brow, a diadem of light. Once he put out the sun, his enemies said, give us a sign from heaven, and he did. When he was born, he put a new star in the sky. When he died, he put out the sun. And now his face is 
as the sun. He gazes out across the world with light eclipsing splendor flashing from his countenance. The angel swears by God as if God were above him and beyond him. The angel swears by the name of the creator, the one who spoke, and everything else follows, that God will reclaim what is rightfully his. This genuinely is the beginning of the end in Revelation. There will be no more delay. Literally, there will be no more time. Time will be no more. Wickedness will have run its course and God will act as he always said he would. Why did he wait? I do not know. I cannot answer that question. A sworn affirmation the angel gives. In verse 7, the mystery finished, completed, is brought to an end. And the things previously unrevealed are finally laid out into the open. The mystery of the kingdom of God is fully established. All of the questions at that time will be answered. And all of the questions his disciples asked and the answers they did not listen to recorded in Matthew 24 and 25 will have come to pass. And notice in verses 8 through 11, here is what I have called a sweet and sour assignment. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This lesson in verses 8 through 11 is taught to us without comment. Now that's unusual in the book of Revelation. Often in Revelation it explains the things to us, but it does not do that here. It offers in beautiful symbolic language truth taught without comment and yet it is very graphic and it's very plain in its teaching by eating John partakes of the essence of the book he eats all of it he partakes of all of its contents he internalizes it the prophet Jeremiah said to the Lord, Thy word was found, and I did eat it. He appropriates its statements, its promises, its affirmations. It is sweet in his mouth 
because it is the word of promise, the word of grace. It is the revelation of the love and the mercy of God. But as he digests it, it becomes bitter because it also contains the revelation of the judgment and the wrath of God. It is sweet to read of the second coming of the kingdom of God and of the final victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what an awful and bitter price man, the earth, and the Lord Jesus have to pay to secure that eternal kingdom. God's children are never so powerful as when they are filled with His power as they internalize and are fed and are nourished on His Word. I like the illustration that the navigators use of the hand of the Word. We are to hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate on the Word. And all of them are important. And as we do, He will bring to us all that we need to be healthy, to be effective, to be full of His presence and His power. And we must, as we take the air and as we take the water and as we take the food, we must take it faithfully and regularly. Even in this text, the way that, that John describes what he did with the book, I heard the book, I saw, I heard again, I went, I said, I took, I ate. All focused in this narrative description on the book, on the Word of God. His Word is practical. In fact, nothing else really is practical except the Word of God. No wonder John understood the Word because of all of the time and all of the focus and attention that he put into it. You know, this uh, description is a little bit humorous, I think. Uh, here is the mighty angel of God, one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, speaking with thunder and lightning and a rainbow around his head. And here is John coming up, tugging and saying, I want that book. Don't ever let anyone tell you that God does not have a sense of humor. But John just obeyed. He just obeyed. You know, in fact, John's participation in the book, as he describes it, is an incredible lesson in obedience. When John was taken to heaven early in the book, he said he fell down at his feet as if dead. He was terrified with fright. But the voice spoke to him and said, Fear not. And from that point on, we do not see him self-conscious or afraid because he has believed and accepted the word that God spoke to him. We can live that way. No wonder he understood. No wonder 
he comprehended God's word. He was open. He was obedient. He was faithful. And then the angels say to him, you must preach again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Oliver B. Green, the late uh, evangelist, a fundamental Baptist from South Carolina that I still listen to at every opportunity, who most often closed his broadcast as he prayed by saying, save lost sinners and especially that soul that's nearest hell. Oliver B. Green made this statement about this anomaly of the sweetness and the bitterness of the Word of God. There is nothing sweeter than the message of grace, redemption, and peace. But there is nothing quite so bitter as the judgment message that God's messengers must deliver. To eat is to make the thing one's own, to incorporate it into one's being. John eats the little book. It is exceedingly bitter in his innermost being. Why? Because the book revealed the terrible, horrible judgments of God's holy fury. It is not all sweet to be a fully consecrated believer, a faithful prophet. There is pain, suffering, bitterness, heartache, lamentation, and woe when we see and realize the judgment that will come on the unbeliever. The message of grace is sweet and it must be delivered. The message of judgment is bitter. It brings anguish and suffering, but it too must be delivered. John tells us that God is love, and I believe it. Paul tells us that God is a consuming fire, and I believe that. The psalmist tells us that the man is blessed who walks with God, and I believe it. The psalmist also tells us that God is angry with the wicked every day, and I believe that also. On the island of Patmos, exiled for his faith, experiencing persecution, the Word of God is an assurance of his eternal salvation. It is a basis for John's fellowship with the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And it is the ground for his hope of glory that will be fulfilled in the future. And now John must prophesy. At this point, we leave behind his visions for all men, great and small. As he began again to write, and we will see in the balance of the book of Revelation that God's wrath will be beyond anything that man with all of his technology can ever do. And by the way, let me repeat something here that I said weeks ago, and that is, I do not believe that Revelation teaches that we, as humankind, are going to end human history in a nuclear holocaust. God doesn't need our help to judge the world. He has reserved the end of all things for himself, and when he speaks, all of nature and all of creation will respond to his command without anybody pushing 
the button. I'm afraid that often we want only to hear the sweetness of the word, and I relate to that. But accommodating to the reluctance to hear of wrath will not change the fact that all who leave this earth without Jesus Christ alive in their hearts will suffer it all. God's wrath is as great as his love. And the only question that is relevant for us first to answer before others, the only question to answer first is this. What have you done with him? What will you do with him? When you have settled that, you will settle your place in the things that John prophesies. And you can get on with your appointed destiny to give him glory either by obedience or as the object of his wrath. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have not set us adrift in a universe of time and space that you've not put this planet on automatic pilot and taken a nap. I thank you that your hand is on the controls and that you are never further away from us but what our breath as we pray reaches your ear. Father, it seems so improbable and so remote that judgment will come, but it will. Would you give us, by your grace, the ability to see just a bit of what awaits both the glory and the judgment. And may we live our lives day by day in an awareness that our eternal destination is to rule and reign with you forever. May we live now in the light of that fact. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to have a, a hymn of invitation. It is a time of commitment when we invite you publicly not to show your commitment or your loyalty or allegiance to the institution of this local church but we have the great high and holy privilege in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to offer you an opportunity to obey him by sharing with his people that he has changed your life I invite you to come forward to pray about your salvation, to share with us that fact if you have been saved. I invite you to join the church if God would lead you to invest your life here in this congregation. This altar is open for you to pray, but whether you come forward or whether you stay where you are, before you leave this room tonight, do what he wants you to do so that when that 
trumpet does sound, it will find you not only ready, but waiting and watching to go with him. We will sing, Have Thine Own Way. It's hymn 349 if you need the book. What he would have you do, do it right now. Do it quickly as we stand while we sing. Ushers will take their places and we'll receive God's tithes and our offerings. May we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us all things necessary to life and to godliness through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, whom the Lord Jesus said would come to explain to us his word. May we be 
not reservoirs, but conduits of your love, of your grace, and of your resources. May we model the life of giving that was the Lord Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen.